Welcome to Globally Speaking, a podcast about connecting with global audiences. Globally Speaking is designed to explore the challenges involved in breaking down language and communication barriers. Our hosts and guests, thought leaders and industry experts, discuss their experiences on a range of topics relating to content, communication and customer engagement. Welcome to today's episode. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Globally Speaking. I'll be your host today. My name is Andrew Thomas. I'm a senior marketing director at RWS. And for the next several episodes, we're going to focus on the theme of unlocking global understanding. And we decided that what better way to dive into this topic but to go all the way back to the roots of this podcast with its very own founder, um, a localization luminary who probably needs no introduction, Mr. Renato Benito himself. I would like you to just give folks, for the few folks that don't know anything about you, just introduce yourself and give us your background on how you came to be part of the localization industry. Thank you, Andrew. So I'm Renato Beninato. I've been in this business since 1983. Uh, so I'm one of the, the of the generation that uh, built localization. When I started, localization wasn't a term, uh, and uh, it was something that started to happen in the 90s, and it's been about 30 years that this uh, domain has existed. Today, I am the owner, co-owner of uh, a company called Nimsy Insights. We do market research and consulting in the localization industry. And um, I also teach a class at the Middlebury Institute in Monterey uh, about called The Business of Translation, which was the foundation and the basis for the book that I wrote with my business partner, Tucker Johnson, The General Theory of the Translation Company. There are lots of things in the middle, but uh, I can say that... uh, one of the things that I like to say is that I'm, I'm an early adopter. So I like to do things early when, when things are coming, and then I get uh, distracted or attracted by the next shiny object. And this is what was at the foundation of this uh, podcast, in a way. Well, that's funny, because that was going to be my next question. I, I definitely get distracted by the, the, the shiny object as well from time to time. I've only been doing this in this industry for 20 years, so you got 10 years on me. But um, speaking of this podcast, you know, uh, why did you originally launch Globally Speaking? What was your thinking at the time? So I, uh, it was a period when um, podcasts were just starting. It, it was being a podcaster was actually a differentiator, not like uh, uh, everybody has a podcast these days. So... <laughs> So uh, at the time, I, I, I learned listening to a podcast to associate things that are uh, challenging for you with something that you enjoy very much in order to achieve your goals. So uh, I started uh, several years ago uh, listening to podcasts while I walked, while I exercised. So... Uh, the more I listened to podcasts, the more I, I, I started walking, and that affected my positively affected my my physical health. And uh, 
of course, it's a genre that is very attractive because it's conversational, it's informational, uh, and uh, one day, uh, Michael Stevens, who used to work with me and my team, came up with the idea of starting a podcast, and I said, well, let's do it together, and uh, we invited some people and started having conversations, and the rest is history. We did close to 100 episodes with the original Globally Speaking podcast. Yeah, absolutely. And we still have all those episodes available for people to listen to today. I think uh, people still talk about some of the episodes and some of the uh, topics that you guys dived into. And, uh, you know, you started it, I believe, when you were uh, at Moravia. And of course, then RWS acquired Moravia. And I think we very quickly realized that this was a podcast that had a lot of value, not just to us, but, you know, its intention and focus was to be a value to the whole industry. And, you know, we wanted to keep that, we wanted to keep that alive. So, you know, but it's funny that you have that, um, it's that same uh, uh, early adopter attitude that led you to the podcast. So uh, yeah, that's, that's cool to see. Um, Would you say that's the same, is that early adopter attitude, the same thing that led you to start Nemzi out of curiosity? Yeah. Actually, not necessarily, because I had already had... There is a something that goes with the early adopter is an, a, a sense of dissatis, dissatisfaction with the status quo or whatever is available. So uh, I co-founded Common Sense Advisory, or CSA Researchers, as it's called today, back in 2002 with uh, Don De Palma, and what was driving that was uh, I was an executive at Berlitz and uh, my boss, the CEO at Berlitz, kept saying, Renato, this is a, a huge industry um, and we only have $130 million in revenue, which was the biggest company in the, lock, in the industry at the time. <laughs> it's grown just a little bit since then. <laughs> yes, exactly. Where is the rest of the business? Why do we have only $130 million in revenue? But the reality that is that at that time, there was no information available. There was no research. Uh, Don, my business partner, uh, still the, the, the lead at, at CSA, had started some research in software localization when he worked at Forrester. So there was a demand in the market for gathering some original information that we take for granted today, which are things like uh, the localization maturity model, the can't read one by pricing models, and these were questions that you could poll a bunch of people and you would get some, some information, but you didn't have patterns, you didn't have rules, you didn't have information. So I left, I went to work for a company in Germany called Mora- um, Milengo, and then I went to Moravia. We took Moravia through an amazing growth journey from 40 to $160 million in four years, and the other thing that started, I started noticing was that uh, the market had evolved, the mar- market had changed, not so much in terms of the general dynamics of the market, but the people had changed. And uh, the way that people communicate, one of the things that uh, generated NIMSI was this course that I teach at the Middlebury Institute which is to the, the the youngest people, people coming into the industry, and they don't have foundational information. 
my generation is leaving the industry and and the the questions the demands the 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 need for knowledge in our industry has changed not only the way the people who are who need that information the way they consume information and the new questions that are coming around it's very easy to talk about the past looking at the future projecting where these new uh, uh, findings in the industry are taking us, it's a different challenge. So the, the motivation is similar, but the, the, the environment, the gestalt is slightly different. Well, it's, it's funny that you mentioned about the, the, new, the newer generations, because I oftentimes think about how even though the challenges are are in a different space or they're running up against them in a different way, I'm struck by the repetition of the solutions that we keep seeing, right? Like I remember doing localization back at, you know, in the late nineties, early two thousands and dealing with tech string limitations because of computer limitations of, of desktop computers. And then of course that all went away, but then the cell phone came along and suddenly we're right back to, you know, the size of the app that's installed on the phone and, and the, the length of the string that can be displayed on the screen. And, and as soon as that gets resolved with smartphones, now we've got Internet of Things and suddenly and wearables. And it's the exact same pattern all over again. Right. Even though even though they're to your point, like they are truly new challenges, but also to your point, an, um, a newer generation has taken over by that point, And they they didn't learn the lessons we learned. They didn't learn like. This is you have to think about truncation. And you have to think about the impacts and all. Yeah, it's just funny. Concatenation, truncation, <laughs> uh, uh, international internationalization issues, and uh, this is something when smartphones started to come out, uh, lots of early localization uh, attempts with apps that were not designed for localization had this. Uh, common problems of concatenation and, and, and hard-coded strings and traditional internationalization problems. But there are two things that I like to repeat. One is this concept that I call the evergreen effect, right? There's always a new generation of people that have made the, the make assumptions and ask the same questions that we've been ask, answering forever. It's like, why do you need two types of Spanish? If I didn't have to repeat that every year, I wouldn't be in the right business, right? At least we have a new generation coming with the same questions that we've had many years ago. And the second quote that I like is the P.T. Barnum quote that there's a sucker born every minute. So that means that you need to sell the same things again to new products, new generations, new platforms. So one of the things that I read recently that I found very insightful is that in the late 1800s, it was very easy to predict the ascent and domination of the automobile. But nobody was really talking about the traffic jams. Nobody was even, they couldn't predict it. They couldn't predict the global warming, the effect of carbon monoxide in the atmosphere and things like that. So it's easy to predict the, the expansion of AI that is going to be a reality for everybody, but it's hard to predict 
the fact that uh, we have 40 solutions for machine translation today and new ones coming up every single day. Uh, so uh, I was joking the other day that um, one of the jobs of the future is going to be uh, machine translation sommelier. It's the person who chooses the right machine translation for the We've right We've got a wonderful situation. 1970s varietal uh, MT. Exactly. Here, here yeah. we go. <laughs> Your uh, 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 vintage uh, uh, Danish to Korean machine translation for chemical uh, patents. And uh, we can combine that with some LQA from Lexica that will do uh, a complete check of the edit distance and whatever, you make it up, right? It opens up so, the bouquet. <laughs> the bouquet, exactly. So the, 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 the reality is that we hear a lot of, of doomsday uh, predictions that uh, technology is going to take over and so on, because that's the linear projection of what is going to happen. But what you just described, Andrew, is it's, it's a perfect uh, situation, is the fact that uh, we, we, we advance, but we need to go back. We advance, we take steps forward and a couple of steps back, because the 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 how do you say the 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 form the formats the 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 platforms everything keeps changing and now you have this uh, uh at the same time that you have a trend of miniaturization mi mi miniature miniaturization you have an also also a trend of uh uh infinite uh uh display so today I'm sitting here in front of me. I have a 45-inch screen that I can see everything, whatever size I want. And at the same time, I have a, a, a cell phone where I need to wear my glasses to be able to read uh, uh, the, the, the basic information in there, right? So things expand not in one direction, not in one format, in, in multiple directions. And some of these conflicting uh, demands we, we, we have to go back to the experiences that we had years ago, counting how many characters you can have on a string, making sure that uh, the font uh, doesn't get tweaked into the other language, that you don't make the stupid mistakes that uh, creative people bring into the localization space, like they want to say, I don't know, uh, 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 we're going to be humans with a capital H or something like that. And then they don't realize that there are languages that don't have capital letters. How do you translate that into Korean? And uh, so uh, concepts and, and, and things that are cultural, are marketing, are non-technical, and that require judgment, right? And the very, the hardest thing to outsource, delegate, buy is good judgment. This is why we called our company Common Sense Advisory, because they, they say that common sense is the only thing that you can't sell, but we tried. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you, Common Sense Advisory is still around. Nimsy's been around for quite a while now, so I'd say that uh, clearly you guys are, are serving a need for the industry, which is good to see. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 a, it's a fun journey with uh, interesting challenges. Uh, as a consulting organization, we're constantly talking to 
to buyers who come up with uh, different, even legacy companies that have been around for decades, they need to reinvent themselves, they need to adapt, they need to change. We recently worked on a project for IBM where their organization was still very ingrained into the, the, the mainframe culture and the strategic direction of the company is going to the cloud, but all their internal solutions were uh, on-prem. So they needed to have a change management exercise to move to other situations, and we worked with them in that. They shared this story recently at uh, the Lockworld stage. I, I saw that. I saw that yeah. presentation. It was interesting. And it's funny because, you know, even at, here at RWS with our translation management offerings, we're going through the similar transformation. So it's it's funny how, you know, the very the companies that we support in this industry, the patterns that they go through, we go through ourselves as language service providers or technology providers. You know, it just shows you that um, going back to your earlier example about the introduction of the automobile, some of these patterns are universal and you can't quite always predict what the ripple effects are going to be or what the ramifications are going to be. Um, but I did want to ask you, I mean, you've already mentioned, you mentioned machine translation and some of the ways that that's having a profound impact. What are some of the other trends that you are currently seeing uh, when it comes to our industry right now? I mean, I, I want to take advantage of you being a guest on this show and as somebody who can obviously spot these trends. And while you might not be able to predict the traffic, what are some predictions that you think or some trends that you think the listeners should be aware of? So many, many years ago, Andrew, I bought a book on a bargain bin at a bookstore in Montreal, which was called The Visionary's Paradox. And it was an it's it is an amazing book. I strongly recommend people to read it. But right at the beginning, they talk about the the definition of this visionary paradox. If if the things that you describe seem plausible, you're not describing the future; you're just describing the present. It's you associate that with the other William Gibson quote that the the future is already here; it's just not evenly distributed, right? And the other part of the paradox is that if the things that you are predicting seem completely absurd and out of place, they're probably wrong. So there's you have this paradox. Whatever you do, you're either describing the present or, or describing a wrong future. But we are always trying to understand, as one of the techniques that I love when, when you're trying to make predictions is this concept of the slingshot effect. You pull back, which is where we began this conversation. Let's look at the things that we used to do to the past, and then you try to project that into the future. Some indicators that we have in, in our industry that are quite important for what is going on is that we have a talent shortage that is increasing, right? It is uh, uh, something that we started to talk about maybe three or four years ago, five years ago. And then now I, uh, I can see it more vividly. Um, there, there are two, I, I can see it in the enrollment of university classes, which has shrunk significantly when it comes to languages. I, I, I do some seminars at the University of um, Surrey in England. And... Uh, before the pandemic, I went to a class there. There were 40 students in the class. 
this year I was talking to the coordinator and they only had eight students in re registered. Uh, recently I went to a meeting in Brazil and, you know, one of these, uh, co-working spaces and I arrived, uh, uh, at the reception with my client and the receptionist was very nice. And she asked, uh, what business were you in? You know, let's start a chit chat while I walk you to your conference room. And we said, oh, we're in the translation business. Oh, I'm a translator. I said, you're a translator. Why are you working here as a receptionist? Oh, I was doing medical translations and uh, I wasn't, it was very hard. There was a lot of price pressure. I wasn't making any money. I needed a job. I got pregnant and I needed insurance and things like that. So she's a receptionist. She's not an economist. She's not a, 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 a manager and executive. She went from being a translator to a receptionist. This is very bad for us. My feeling there was uh, we are doing um, a disservice to ourselves when, as an industry, and I'm not talking specifically about companies, but as an industry, we don't reach a certain maturity that we can talk with our clients about value and talk about price, and we drive the talent that we need away from the industry. What is going to happen is inevitable, is that we're going to get to a point where uh, there aren't going to be enough uh, people doing the job, and then prices are going to go up, and we're going to have scarcity, and we'll be fighting for this talent, and machine translation is going to take a, a, a different role, and so on. But that, that's one of the trends that I see is, is the, the lack of talent. It's yes, funny that you mentioned that because um, I know we have spoken as a company about uh, a, lot of, a lot of our clients are looking to you know, reach that next billion users. They're looking at the longer tail languages. And we're recognizing that you know, the concept of being a translator in some of those languages doesn't even exist. And so we have to establish... The, the practice, right? But it, it strikes me as we need to be doing that same kind of work within the established languages as well if this is a trend that you're seeing, right? We can't just assume that those people are going to be around. So there's there's one thing also that I noticed that is a trend more than a, a prediction, right? Um, we are in this conference season. So you're listening to experts everywhere and the recent conference, there was a lot of conversations about the future of machine translation. And there was a certain consensus that when it comes to the the main languages, English, English French, Italian, German, etc., Japanese, and so on, uh, neuromachine translation has already uh, reached its peak. The All uh, improvements that we're going to see moving forward are going to be marginal. Right, we had a, 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 a significant quality improvement and, and, and uh, 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 speed and quality and, 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 and context improvement when we may, went from statistic from rules based to statistical statistical uh, statistical to neural and now until we go to quantum if it ever comes we are going to be in this marginal thing we we get. Uh, when we talk about, I joked about the machine translation sommelier, but you look at our friends at Intento, 
who are essentially comparing machine translation solutions here and there, what they are essentially saying is that every month they publish a ranking and you see one month is Google, the other month is Amazon, the other one is Modern MT, the other one is whatever. And uh, the, 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 the change, I advance a little bit here on uh, the formal versus informal axis. I uh, uh, advance a little bit here on, I don't know, context uh, improvement by segment and so on. But all these, these improvements are marginal we're not going to have a revolutionary change this is as good as it gets in that in that case in particular then it becomes something that we talk about which is it's down to your specific need and your specific training of the mt more than the specific mt off the shelf absolutely get, right and then and then you get into the sommelier situation which one am i going to use and which which, which is the best engine for my use case right and that use case might be uh, a pharmaceutical translation for uh, a German pharmaceutical company where the source is German. Maybe DPL is the best solution, but DPL doesn't provide translations into Danish. I'm supposedly I don't know, right? So then you need a you you need a German Danish solution separately. So this is where you come into where where. Where is the value? And this is something that is permanent and I don't think it's going to change. The value that uh, this relationship between buyers and LSPs creates is the project management, the managing of the situation. What, and this is the, the thesis of, of my book, is that translation companies don't sell translation, they sell project management. They manage complexity. And that complexity, yes, and the complexity is something that is constantly changing. You cannot automate complexity. You can automate something that is complicated, but you cannot automate something that is complex. And uh, this is not going to change because complexity it, uh, breeds complexity. It, 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 the more variables you put, the more complex it becomes. Management is is required. Well, and and you know what I what I noticed in my time I was doing local project management at Adobe for several years. And one of the things I noticed as a pattern there was, you know, the really big product launches, the Acrobat product launches, the Photoshop product launches were all very well regimented, well planned. And those probably could have been automated much more than they were at the time because we didn't have the tools to automate them. But inevitably, for every single one of those major launches that you had, you always had a million one-off exceptions that were last minute that were wildly different in nature. There was no consistency from one to the next. And to your point, they each needed to be managed. And at least the same amount of energy and attention had to be spent managing these exceptions as the larger projects. And yes. that's a pattern that, that, to your point, never goes away. Um, never goes away. And actually, this is one of the things that was a big shift in the history of our industry. We use and where automation makes a, makes a big difference and where tools like the, the Trado suite of tools that you have now make a, a, take a, an important role is the fact that we used to manage everything, right? And, and, and then you, you, you manage as a, any project management, you manage resources, people, money, and time, right? And um, it was 
you designed everything that you were going to do. But as things grew in complexity, you started to automate some of these things. So you you don't need to be picking up the phone and calling the translators to check if they're available to do a translation. You have like a, a system that identifies the best translator for that type of content. They see whether they're online, whether they're available. You probably send five uh, emails to uh, uh, five translators nearby, and then you go to the next 10 and so on and so forth. Those things were automated. So one of the things that has changed in our industry, and I don't know in which direction it would change uh, moving forward, is that we moved from actively managing projects to managing by exception, right? So now the project manager is sitting in front of a dashboard and you see I have 50 projects to to manage and a tool like TMS will say, oh, this project has a, a yellow uh, uh, alert here because it, it hasn't been touched in three hours. So I need to proactively pick up the phone and call a translator. Or this project uh, has been sitting here for 24 hours and nobody has reviewed it. I need to proactively work on that. And this is a, a, a change that we have had in the way that we work in this industry. But uh, I don't know if... if how this goes to the next level? Uh, do you get like a, 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 a flash in your Google glasses or, or Google glasses? I'm aging myself. I did buy one of those. It was the worst. Oh, you, you were the one. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm an early adopter, like I said. So I bought Google glasses and I have Oculus and all those things just to check how they are. And uh, But you're probably going to see it on a screen, on a on a. <clears throat> alert somewhere in your pinky finger, I don't know, that you have to act on something. Yeah, but managing by exception, I agree, is one of the big shifts. I mean, it's the same pattern that we saw with like system administrators when the internet was first born, where you'd have a single sysadmin for a single server, and now they have a whole server farms, and they, same thing, they, they manage by exception. They're not literally looking at every box. So, we feel that's a good thing because then it again it helps people scale, right? So absolutely, and this is how because the volumes our industry is beautiful in the sense that first of all it's an industry that has never seen a crisis, it's an industry that is constantly growing and it grows uh, year after year uh, above the average uh, growth of the economy above GDP, and. Um, uh, it grow the reason why it is impervious to crisis and keeps growing is that unlike most industries that grow by volume and by replacement our industry um grows along three vectors we grow by volume we grow by number of languages and we grow by number of platforms right so uh and the other thing and here's a prediction that i can make with certainty is that the the for most companies uh, there's going to be a big number of clients that they're going to have five years from now that are companies that don't exist today. Probably among the RWS's top ten clients is going to be a company that is going to be the Facebook of tomorrow, the the Amazon of tomorrow, uh, and we are in the cusp of uh, a change an infrastructure change, 5G, uh, that allows this virtual reality environment, which is going to take a shape 
that is very different from what we have in mind today. It's like I said, if, 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 if it sounds absolutely crazy, it's probably wrong. So I don't know how it's going to look like, but it's not going to look like the metaverse. And um, this creates uh, new demand for content, new demand for localization. And um, it's, it's something that is going to help us grow even more. So to that end, I want to turn to kind of the theme that we're going to be talking about for a couple of episodes um, moving forward is RWS recently went through our own kind of rebranding process and uh, came out with this statement about unlocking global understanding. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've noticed even some of our competitors are now saying unlocking this or that. So it's interesting to see the impact. But I do think it strikes upon a certain idea. Um, and it's, again, it's not like it's the first time I've heard this idea in my 20 years. I'm sure it's not the first time you've heard it in your 30 years. But when you hear a phrase like unlocking global understanding, what do you think of? What does that, what does it mean to you? And what do you think more importantly, should it mean to our industry or the customers that use us? Well, it's just a very simplistic analysis is the case that unlocking means uh, uh, freeing, right? Making it easy. And essentially what you're doing is removing barriers with technology to open up communication. We're in the business of communication. Uh, Translation only happens when somebody wants to communicate something to somebody else. And uh, we are in this, well, the the word translation is associated with bridge, right? So we are the bridge of communication between languages, cultures, geographies, whatever it is that you want to to use. But um, so unlocking global understanding is making it easy for people to if it is if 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 it is the enterprise client to expand and and grow uh, globally internationally and and one of the things that uh we are the the nature of of our communication is in english we are having this conversation in english but uh uh the the flow of information and content goes in multiple directions and we tend to think a lot in terms of english to other languages but there is more and more content being created in in China, in Japan, in Korea, and and that is coming to us for consumption here in Europe. And the cars that we drive, and the 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 new technologies that we see, and uh, this is only possible because of uh, we are unlocking that uh, chain and making it easy for people to communicate. Yeah, I mean, I know I I watch uh, Korean shows on Netflix. I watch, uh, you know, Swedish shows on Netflix, looking at their subtitles, because the dubbing is usually not great, but the subtitles are good. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I think this is interesting that it's going multiple ways. Just just to, to stop there on, on, on the comment that you made, look at what Netflix has done, Right. What is the impact? What is the impact of Netflix in a business like ours? One day, they say we're going to go live in a hundred countries. That generated uh, uh, this streaming revolution. Generated 
a big problem for our industry because overnight you have a, a, a crushing demand for subtitlers and translators for dubbing, which is a completely different skill than translation for subtitling. And then overnight, you're asking people to translate for language pairs. I mean, Squid Game was a big challenge because, yeah, yeah, how many, how many uh, uh, Korean into Latvian translators will you have, right? I don't know. I'm making it up. But there might be, sorry, our Latvian to Korean to Latvian translators, if we are making fun of you. But... Uh, can't be more than three. Right? I was just thinking about three, maybe, maybe, yeah. So we, we can get away with making fun of three people. But anyway, the point here is that that created a big, big issue. And I can predict, you asked earlier for me to, to give you predictions. I can predict that we're going to go through other situations like this. The first time that I've witnessed this was in 2006 with the... When, when Microsoft uh, launched Microsoft Vista. Uh, I, yeah, many people, you, ah. So Vista was a major change in the, uh, how do you say, uh, it's not the framework, what's the, the, the code base of how, so if I remember correctly, and, and I, I'm probably saying it wrong, but we went from 16-bit to 32-bit architecture. That's the word that I was looking for. The software architecture changed. And all of a sudden, all these software companies who had localized their content, the software, into uh, several languages on the Windows base uh, uh, um, architecture, all of a sudden they need to redo their code and relocalize everything because of a change in platform. Vista created that. So all of a sudden, everybody in 2006, everybody was looking for localizers. That's when you started seeing people putting, I'm a localizer in the resume because nobody used that, that term before. And Netflix caused that. And it was relatively fast that it's still going through, because it's not only Netflix, you have Amazon Prime, you have HBO, uh, Disney Plus, and you have the international uh, uh, streaming services also, the Chinese, the Korea, yeah, exactly. So this this is the kind of, of, of revolution that affects our space, and the speeds uh, are... are the demand happens and they want solutions overnight, right? And uh, that's the type of complexity that uh, machine translation can't handle by itself. It will translate the words, but it's not going to adapt to a new format. Uh, you mentioned you're having the challenges of apps in, uh, in cell phones. Uh, one of the things that uh, people didn't think about is that now we do a lot of videos that are vertical. So what is the what is the standard for subtitling subtitling in a vertical system, in a vertical screen? In a horizontal screen screen, you know it's 32 characters per line or something like that. We learn by watching TikTok, right? I mean TikTok is teaching us what the subtitling standard is. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But there is one already, but it's a new challenge because this is changing completely. And whenever you have a new change like this, 
you add a, a layer of complexity, you add a new platform, you add new rules, and you have to do it all again. Well, and it's growing pains. It's growing pains. And as to your point, we've never shrunk as an industry. We just keep growing. And so that's a good... I'd much rather have growing pains than shrinking pains. Let's put it that way. Exactly. And the other thing is that the other fear that we have in our industry is that these changes are going to replace existing things, right? I'm I'm from the generation of MTV. When MTV came online, the first song that they played was Video Killed the Radio Star. They never did. Never did. We're here in a podcast, which is essentially a synchronous radio, and we're radio stars. <laughs> so uh, 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 what I mean by that is that we think that the new platforms are going to replace uh, the existing platforms. And no, they coexist. And some things come back. I've got a great example for that. I was at uh, South by Southwest the year that uh, Flickr was introduced. And um, there, I, I attended a design session and everybody was talking about voice-activated interfaces, right? That was the big thing then, right? And one of the, the designers on the panel just said, look, while this is an important new way of interacting, I want you to consider for a moment uh, how many of you are currently on a computer or a laptop right now using it in some way? And like almost everybody in the audience raised their hand. And then he said, now imagine if all of you were using your voice in order to interact with it all at the same time in the audience, it wouldn't work, right? So to your point, it's additive. It's not replacement. You know? Exactly, exactly. Which is great for us, right? And it's also uh, addresses one of the fears that uh, professionals in the industry have is that they're going to become irrelevant. I was having this conversation yesterday by chance that uh, I don't know what was the, the trigger event, but not long ago, uh, everybody in the industry was looking for Fortran and COBOL uh, coders because there was some change in uh, financial uh, requirements and uh, they, hit it, they needed to go to the source code of this huge systems that are running banks and these things were developed in the 80s and yeah and nobody knows how to code in those languages nobody knows how to code those languages so they're going after these guys in their 70s and they're making as much money as they want because they know a language that nobody (laughs) yeah exactly that's the scarcity point that you talked about earlier absolutely absolutely so for old people like me uh, there's still room for because the, 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 there, there's this new things that are going to happen, but the old things don't go away. Uh, we're listening to vinyl records again. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. My my son, I don't listen to vinyl, but my son loves them. He he collects vinyl records, and I just kind of scratch my head. I know it sounds better, but like I just can't be bothered. But uh... exactly, I don't. I'm I, I'm getting deaf right now, so Spotify is just fine. <laughs> Turning back to the global understanding piece of it, though, I wonder, as somebody who's seeing these the, the industry over over the years, what are some brands that you think do this particularly well, either today or maybe even some examples in the past and how that has changed? But, you know, obviously some companies do a really good job of unlocking global understanding for their customer base and others don't. And I'm just wondering, you know, 
which brands you think do and if you see if there's a pattern among the ones that do versus the ones that don't. Okay, so it's a very good question. Um, and if I understand correctly, you're talking about not brands in our industry, you're talking about general brands, right? So the, 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 the first company that comes to mind is Apple. Apple is a company that does an amazing job in communicating value through their brand in different languages, in different markets. Every time I have to speak about transcreation, I just go to the Apple website and grab whatever product they're selling and change the country. And you can see a masterclass in transcreation, literally. It is, it is, I've been doing this. The first time I did, 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 did a presentation on this topic was looking at uh, the launch of the iPod mini, that little, uh, 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 which was the first voice activated uh, personal device. And the, the catch line was, look who's talking, which was a movie in the 90s with, with, with babies that were talking. Yeah. And, and, and that thing, uh, it has, look who's talking, had a, a cultural element that was very clear for us. But uh, not necessarily for somebody in uh, Korea that didn't watch that movie or in Russia, right? So the way that they do this, it was very good. And the other thing that I like to notice, and I use that as an example, and this is for all our listeners here that, that ever have to talk about uh, transcreation, look how Apple does it for Spain and Latin America, for France and Canada, for Brazil and Portugal. Uh, they have a special, it's the same language, but they have a different message for each one of them. Same language, different locale. Different locale, different culture, different uh, marketing appeal. Uh, another company that does this very well, because it does it differently than what we do, is Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola has uh, an amazing local presence all over the world. So they have a brand image, they have a brand message, they have a brand uh, persona, but each local market adapts their messaging to the local uh, calendar because these are consumer products and they need to be very close to the individual that is buying that. On the enterprise side, the demand is different. And, and we are mostly in our space, we tend to work more with enterprise clients than with uh, uh, direct-to-consumer sales. And I think that uh, companies that uh, are able to speak to the emotions of, uh, of people and how they can see themselves in, in, in those brands tend to be more successful than the ones that are focused on the product itself, right? It's one thing they say that a successful company uh, is a company that uh, 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 the client remembers them in situations that are important and, and, and remember how they make them feel. So I think that um, um, it's, it's that classic Simon Sinek talk, uh, where they talk, he talks about the, the why first, the purpose. What are the companies that have purpose? And um, I think that brands like um, 
um, which is weird to say this, but American Express uh, is a, is a company that has uh, good purpose. Um, SAP of all things, uh, they they seem to have a very uh, open. Um, solution for business problems, right? Where uh, uh, business users can see themselves in that. I think that they do a better job than Oracle, for example. Um, And it's funny because every brand that I think of ends up coming to the consumer side of it. Um, But do you think maybe that's my theory over the last several years has been that the the B2B portion of the business, it's just they they're we're we're taking from the B2C style and yes. learning those lessons and saying, yeah, there is power in connecting emotionally to people, even if it is just business. And there is value in talking about a vision that goes beyond just making money or selling a product. That that, that getting to the root cause of why we exist or why this thing that we want you to buy exists. And, not, and, and the people yeah. that are in the company, the clients that are, uh, even though it, it, it's one of the things that we learn in sales is that people buy from, from people, they don't buy from companies. So they mean, they buy from the people that they know, they like, they buy from the people that they like, they, they buy from the people that they remember. And uh, this uh, human element, I think, is uh, more and more... Um, visible now that uh, everything is is remote, virtual, uh, uh, we value it more. And, and I think that we are in, in, a, in a world that uh, it's, it's going through so much change so, so fast. I mean, uh, we are a generation that lived through a pandemic. I mean, this is something that is a historic event and it's going to, is affecting behavior everywhere. And um, um, yeah, I think that, uh, I'm trying to think of, of good, enter- do you have any ideas, Andrew, of, of enterprise that, that does a good job at unlocking that kind of communication that is not consumer only? Maybe GE? Maybe G- yeah, GE is not bad. I think I think your earlier point about I mean, well, I guess American Express is corporate and consumer. Um, I, yeah, you know, it's funny because I know that we all attempt to connect on an emotional level, but it is so much harder in the B2B space. But uh, uh, it's it's definitely a bigger challenge. But I guess the other thing I would say that I think you pointed out with the Apple uh, use case was how we connect emotionally is different in for different cultures. And, you know, I eons ago remember hearing a presentation about uh, just different cultural perceptions and how that should factor into website design and, you know, all all these different things. And uh, it just, it left a lasting impression on me as far as if something's going to resonate with me as an American really strongly and, and evoke an emotional response, even if it's, you know, a B2B thing like, yeah, we want to 
I want a single database that's going to contain all my information, whatever, you know, silly business thing it is. Um, however, they say that in a way that evokes an emotional response to me would probably fall flat in, you know, an, an Asian country or consumer there potentially. Right. And, you know, there's just some wildly different uh, expectations and, you know, like emotional buttons. And, you know, to be perfectly blunt in marketing, we're pretty much all about pushing people's buttons, right? Getting an emotional response. <laughs> so it's so it's, it's one of those things where you, this is where it goes back to the art of localization and on, and back to our theme of unlocking global understanding. Just because I can unlock it for somebody who speaks my own, the same language that I do, does not mean that I can unlock it for somebody who doesn't speak my language, even if I translate the words that I used, right? Like there's a lot more art to this than just absolutely, yeah. And Andrew, and this is another thing that uh, is is we tend to oversimplify in in our business. This is why I was talking about the complexity factor, is that not all content is the same, and not all content requires the same attention. You you mentioned the example of a website. Uh, um, smart clients treat titles and calls to action different than copy text, right? Not every client thinks of that. So when, when you go to a website and there is a, a, a H1 or H2 title, those need attention, right? Those need... Uh, a professional review; those need the 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 work of a transcreator of a copywriter. But the 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 copy text, that paragraph below, it can be machine translated, and many people will, will not notice because they're just going through the callouts for to make a decision. It's very fast, the process that you have to make decisions. So, if you understand that uh, that not every content even if they are part of the same context has the same value and requires the same attention you're already ahead of your competition if you if you're able to speak in a way that is uh, um, culturally appropriate that has nuance and um, uh, local references to what is going on in a certain country that will have a lot more impact. One of the things that I I, I think it's very hard and, uh, is humor. So brands more and more tend to be very close to the consumer and the way that you become close to the consumer is by, I, I like to say, and this is part of our strategy at Nimsy, we want our readers to come out with a smile, right? Uh, to, to, to generate a smile is much harder than to, to create rage or to create empathy, right? And, but this is extremely cultural. It's extremely imbued in uh, cultural references and memories and collective this memories. This is totally off topic, like but it, it's just making me think how like so many social media platforms are generate attention via outrage. And maybe outrage is 
outrage is easier and more cross-cultural than humor. You know, we don't see social media platforms that are predicated on lots of comedy. You know, it's, you don't see it. Yeah. And, 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 and you see, this is one of the things that, uh, it's actually at the genesis of, uh, of Nimsy is, um, I had the idea of writing my book, The General Theory of the Translation Company, for many, many years. But I don't have the discipline nor the patience to be a writer. So I tried ghostwriters, and one day I, 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 I was thinking, you know what, I need a co-author. I need somebody that is good at writing and uh, can, uh, can do this with me and add content to it and so on. So I knew the big picture. I had a... 70-slide PowerPoint presentation that I use for my class. So I, I was on Facebook, and I saw a post by Tucker Johnson, my, my, my partner today, and it cracked me up. It was this subtle humor that you read, and then you take a second look. Oh, my God, this is so funny, right? Like, are they actually saying what I think they're saying? <laughs> yes, yes. And I don't remember what it was exactly. And I said, this is the guy. And we had worked together. We never worked on the same project in the same unit, but we were in the same company and I knew of him. So I gave him a call and said, do you want to write my book? <laughs> and he became a fantastic, because his experience as a project manager and program manager was very, very important in the, the context of the book. And we ended up uh, writing a book together and uh, building a company because of that. And humor was at the center of it. Wow. I mean, uh, so maybe humor is the key to unlocking global understanding. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, make, make me smile with you. <laughs> so um, I think we've been talking for a little bit over an hour now. I um, I think we can wrap it up there. I Perfect. really appreciate your time, Renato. I think uh, I'm I'm really not just trying to stroke your ego when I say localization luminary. I think it's very true. Your impact on our industry has been profound. And of course, if nothing else, for starting this podcast, thanks for doing that so many years ago. Well, thank you for keeping it alive. Absolutely. And uh, so is there anything else that you would like to share with folks? Any, any particular? Um... Uh, no, not really. I think we had a, uh, we had a great conversation. We touched and uh, I was able to slip in some positive comments about Trados. So I'm happy. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I, I'm happy too. Um, okay. Well, uh, thank you for your time and uh, everybody else. Uh, stay tuned for our next episode.